0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit
1: knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Europe continues to be a part of the world that requires a very close look. Their sagging economy is improving a bit, but you also have several elections to keep a close eye on, as well as an upcoming visit from uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel today with President Donald Trump to look at all of those. We are joined here in studio by Wharton's Morrow Gian, Professor of International Management, who is also Director of the Lauder Institute, and joining us on the phone, Michelle Egan, who is professor in the School of International Service at American University. Morrow, great to see you again. Thank, Thank you for having me. Thank you. Michelle, great to have you on the phone again. Very much thank you I guess let's start with the Dutch election uh, and, and what was your reaction to uh, to how that all played out with Mark Rudy uh, holding on for the win
0: well I think it's a relief that uh, essentially uh, populism uh, you know didn't uh, uh, you know have another good day uh, at the same time the problem of course is the extreme fragmentation uh, you know the uh, Dutch electorate essentially has chosen representatives in Parliament. Uh, across uh, many different kinds of parties. Uh, so that's not uh, precisely a recipe for stability. But I think, uh, you know, the day was saved. Uh, we saved the day. You know, we, uh, in Europe, I think, have a uh, now uh, a little bit more optimism regarding the upcoming negotiations with the UK about Brexit and also right. uh, the uh, upcoming French election, which is the next uh, big test. Michelle?
2: I think that... Readers should know that there were listeners, twenty eight parties uh, in this election. So the party fragmentation yeah. is absolutely critical. And I think the level of voter volatility, I think here in the United States we tried to link it to the populist debate here. And I think there were probably three things to note. The first one, I think, is the demise of the center-left in this election. They absolutely lost out. Mm-hmm. There was an emergence of two pro-EU parties, uh, Democrat 66 and the Green Left. And I also think that, you know, it's kind of interesting. We're talking about uh, rutte to be the prime minister for a third term, and yet his party actually lost votes. Um so it's a very very interesting election and I also think that from the outside, everybody was focused on builders and populism, but for a lot of the Dutch, internally, it was about health care, social security, and perhaps down the road as well, immigration. But there were a lot of domestic issues they cared about very strongly.
1: So with that, with that result, Michelle, uh, it, there isn't as much of a potential influence on the other elections. Uh, is, is that how I'm reading what you're saying?
2: The Dutch are somewhat different. I think it's been sort of framed as if this was Wilders, you know, on the uh, populist right versus Rutte, the current prime minister. And it's not a first-past-the-post system like the United States. Building that coalition will be difficult. Mm -hmm. And the only analogy I would make with the perhaps upcoming French election is the fact that, you know the center-left was decimated, and we have no center-left running in the French election. Right. And in Britain, for example, we have a very weak Labour opposition. So that's something to look at across Europe.
1: Well, and as you mentioned, tomorrow the French election coming up next on the, uh, on the agenda, and obviously that's going to be an incredibly closely watched Event, especially as it has been already, the run-up to what we're going to see coming up.
0: No, absolutely, and France in general. You know, I think I've uh, mentioned this in another in another show of yours in the recent past. Uh, France in general, quite frankly, lies at the at the core of the problems in Europe. Yeah. Uh, so this is a country that, uh, for uh, the last uh, nine years since the crisis, has done very little to adjust. Has done very little to uh, change its ways. And, uh, you know, I think this election is, uh, again, not only about the immigration, not only about, uh, you know, the future of Europe, but it's also about the French economy and it's about uh, how to, uh, you know, deal with uh, all of the uh, problems that that it has. And uh, so it's it's, going to be an important watershed.
1: But Marine Le Pen has obviously gotten a lot of publicity uh, in in the last several weeks and, and last few months about this. What what is her what is her realistic chances you think of, of winning this? Well, it's up? a
0: second round. It's a uh, two round. I'm yeah. sorry, two round uh, kind of uh, uh, system, right, for the presidency. Um, so you know you get this dynamic in which uh, uh, in the first round, hopefully, you know, I, I mean, in the first round, people will vote for their preferred candidate, but yeah. then in the second round, hopefully, there will be, uh, you know, a little bit more of uh, pragmatic voting and uh, it is uh, quite likely that uh, marine le pen will be stopped in the second round if not in the first round in the sense that uh, people who uh, absolutely detest her right yeah uh, you know will join forces uh, and uh, vote for the candidate that has a you know that is uh, uh, running up uh, against her in the in the second round, I'm I'm, I'm essentially making the assumption that she is sure. likely to make it into the second sure, round, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, and that's what's going to happen. So this is uh, a fairly undemocratic kind of uh, thing to uh, you know process, right? Yeah. To have this second round, uh, Get or, a second. or some somewhat dubious you know uh, constitutional or rule, right? Uh, yeah. getting a uh, second uh, go at it. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but uh, in this case, it may prevent a. Uh, you know, a candidate such as Marine Le Pen from, uh, from being president, hopefully,
1: fingers crossed. Right. Michelle?
2: Absolutely. I could not agree more. And it's something that Europe is also watching. I think it's much more significant than the Dutch election. But I also think that Europe and the EU in particular is being very cautious uh, with Brexit. And so it's trying to, despite what's going on in Britain, it's sort of trying to wait for the results of this French election before it starts moving in Brexit.
1: We're joined uh, in studio by Mara Gian of the Wharton School and on the phone by Michelle Egan of American University. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. This is Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Uh, and a- Let's talk about Angela Merkel for a second. A- and obviously a lot of people are going to be focusing potentially in Germany down the road, but right now at least the focus is here in the United States on Merkel and Donald Trump and conversations that met, that they are expected to have, uh, and seemingly I see a lot of the commentary being around the G20. Uh, how important is that to a potential conversation between these two tomorrow? And what are some of the other things that 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 Angela Merkel is really trying to do
0: in meeting with Donald Trump? Well, there's many issues on the agenda. I mean, the U.S. and Germany, um, you know, the bilateral relationship is is uh, is very complex. Uh, these are two allies in principle, right? Yeah. Or at least up until now, there was no question that these yeah. were two countries that had a military alliance and uh, and so on and so forth. But let's not forget, I mean, Germany also is the country in the world with the largest trade surplus, yeah. um, current account surplus, uh, bigger than, than China's. And, uh, you know, it has a sizable uh, imbalance in trade with the U.S. So Merkel will try to, uh, I guess, at the same time that it seeks uh, some reassurance from the United States about... Uh, how the uh, new administration sees uh, Europe and sees Germany. But they also want to stay below the radar screen, right? Uh, Because so far, Trump uh, himself as uh, as an individual has attacked Mexico, has attacked China. But, you know, uh, Germany is actually a a much worse offender. He has said in the past... uh, that he believes that uh, the euro is undervalued and that um, that has helped uh, Germany, right? In other words, that which is true, right? I mean, yeah. it has it has helped uh, German exports and the German trade surplus. Uh, so there's uh, there's a lot of issues on the agenda. Let's not forget also Merkel is facing a uh, an election as well, yeah. and it will be a historic one because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if he were to um, uh, renew her mandate as prime minister for another four Fourth. years, I think he would be the uh, if not the longest lasting yeah. uh, prime um, uh, chancellor in Germany second-longest-lasting, and let's not forget, the longest-lasting was uh, Otto von Bismarck, uh, who is a, uh, you know, pivotal figure in uh, German uh, politics. Uh, so there's this a lot of uh, things at stake here, but also Merkel feels uh, that, you know, she has a uh, the right agenda. She feels she has the right agenda for Europe, as well as for Germany. Right. But, you know, the, the problems are mounting, and um, before we know it, uh, we may have to talk about uh, debate uh, Greece again, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, but Germany is one of the three, I think, uh, most influential countries in the world right now. So it's uh, the U.S., China, and Germany, right? And uh, so this is a very important meeting. There's there's no other country in the world uh, besides China that is, I think, more important to the United States right now and that is potentially more influential. I mean, Germany is an economic powerhouse. Let's not forget, it has a balanced budget. It has a huge (laughs) trade surplus. Uh, The country is doing really well economically. Uh, it is a democracy that seems to be working quite well uh, it has put behind all of its problems or most of its problems with uh with the eastern uh, uh, parts of the of the country uh you know after na- the 1990s not all of them but many of them have been brought under control right. uh, so Germany is in a very good position to uh you know play um you know uh, as an influential power in the world in Europe and in the world uh, but there are some limits to that and one of them of course is russia that's the yeah. other thing i mean yeah. You know, for Germany right now, uh, Germany has many issues with Russia, uh, not least of which is uh, the fact that they rely on Russian exports of gas to, I think, is like 40 percent of their natural gas needs. Uh, And the U.S., um, you know, it's not clear exactly what the relationship is with Russia, uh, with this administration. So I think uh, that's going to be very high up on the the agenda for the
1: meeting. What do you think, uh, Michelle, what do you think uh, Angela Merkel's agenda is coming here to the U.S.?
2: I think it's twofold. I think it's absolutely about trade. And it's obviously, as you pointed out, you know, the U.S. has a trade deficit with Germany. There was some talks about currency manipulation. So I think the trade issue is very important. And also to try and emphasize to uh, the trade uh, warriors here in Washington that the cannot do bilateral deals with european states that are part of the eu and we have a common commercial policy in the in europe and so i think that will be one of the emphasis is the trade she's brought with her some ceos from uh... german auto sector and to really emphasize german investment and jobs in the united states and the apprenticeship system on the hope that that will get some traction so i think that will be first The second issue, I think, will be the issue of NATO. She'll follow in the path of Theresa May and she will trying to emphasize the importance of nato europe is a regional power it does do out of area and she's been very clear that germany will increase its spending commitment to nato the burden-sharing debate is not new it's just been amplified in the recent administration and raised some concerns in europe about the future of nato but we've had that discussion before after the end of the cold war but Russian sanctions will be the other issue. So there will be a number of issues, and I think that, remember, this is a chancellor, long serving one, as was pointed out. This is her third president. She's dealt with Bush, Obama, and Trump. And so she's also dealing with a Turkish uh, president and a Russian president. So she's used to uh, dealing with very, very tough situations.
1: Well, and and actually, it's a good point that you bring up there. And the fact that it it was written earlier this week about the fact that uh, Angela Merkel, in terms of her uh, run as chancellor in Germany, Michelle, uh, the relationship between her and President Bush and her and President Obama may not have been the proverbial warm and fuzzy all the time, but they got along and they they understood where they had to have common ground.
2: Uh, Yes and no. I mean, there were, you know, frictions, obviously, going back when you think about the Iraq war, then there Mm. was the uh, under the Bush administration. And then you think about the wiretapping and the uh, surveillance issue under the Obama administration. But, you know, the other thing is, is that there is obviously a German election and she's actually now facing um, a a competitor. Uh, Scholz, and he's very pro-EU coming out of the European Parliament. So one has to remember that you know two Europeans are running in this uh, presidential for chancellor in Germany, which is also why I think she'll want to make the pitch for the importance of the EU. This is the anniversary of the uh, both Marshall Plan seventy-five this year, and also the Schuman Declaration. So these are big sort of I think she's hoping to sort of build on that, the importance of the EU as well as Germany.
1: We're joined uh, on the phone by Michelle Egan of American University, here in the studio by Maru of the Wharton School. Your comments welcome either on phone at 844-WHARTON, 942 or if you'd like, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at bizradio, B-I-Z radio, 111, or you can use my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. The interesting part about uh, about this meeting between uh Merkel and Trump is the fact that at least how it is playing out right now Michelle these two are people that that have Pretty different philosophies on a lot of different issues right now. So uh, you almost get the sense and maybe this is the case when, you know, you, you, these types of meetings happen for the first time, but it, it feels like it's a little bit of a of a feeling out process between the two to really get an understanding is as, as to what the other person is trying to to, to bring forth.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, on the one hand, you have the issue of, you know, she studied very hard and she's really promoting the sort of the trade angle. She'll be really concerned about Russian sanctions and she'll be really concerned about. Uh, that the trade deficit and the trade angle and the EU so there's a lot on her agenda but on the other hand you know there are deep differences on the immigration issue for example but one also has to remember that this is not just you know the most important issue that uh, Merkel is dealing with uh, she's got her domestic issue as well and then with an election But she's also, you know, having a great deal of backlash that we've been seeing recently over uh, the large number of uh, German Turks and the effort to try and get them to vote in um, an upcoming referendum. So, you know, she's also dealing with, quote unquote, interference from outside in her own uh, country. And so, you know, there is some, you know, some issues and parallels you know, vague as they are, but I'm just saying that she's got domestic issues as well and other uh, neighboring powers that she's having to deal with. So it's not just all about Trump. We can't make it all about Trump.
1: And all of this plays out, tomorrow as we're still in the middle of of pushing a Brexit forward. And now Scotland Scotland wants to have another referendum vote, that uh, coming out uh, recently. Uh, So that just adds to kind of the mix of this whole process right now.
0: Yes, of course. I mean, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May is likely to invoke uh, Article 50 in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, they want to delay it a little bit so that it doesn't coincide with the anniversary of the uh, Treaty of Rome, the 60th anniversary, which was mentioned earlier. And, uh, but, uh, you know, in the last few days, uh, the British Parliament has passed uh, the legislation, uh, you know, the, Brexit, the so-called Brexit uh, legislation, and uh, the House of Lords has essentially, uh, you know, indicated that they're not going to uh, oppose it, as yeah. there were some ramblings, uh, you know, about. Uh, so, yeah, th- those things are making progress now. And uh, it's, um, you know, now the uh, the attention shifts towards uh, the, um, at the beginning of the negotiations. And let's see what happens with that. Uh, and then the Scotland uh, issue, uh, well, it has reemerged because the uh, Scottish um, uh, Prime uh, um, Minister Sturgeon has... Uh, yeah taking advantage of the uh, opportunity and said that uh, there's a material change now, given that, uh, you know, the previous referendum was held uh, when there were no doubts about um, uh, Britain's EU membership. Uh, but, you know, the public opinion polls seem to indicate that um, the Scottish electorate is um, it's also turning its back on Europe. It's, uh, they're becoming more Eurosceptic. Uh, so this is going to be a very risky bargain on uh, the Scottish uh, Nationalist Party to uh, call another referendum. They could lose it again. Right? Yeah. Uh, But it appears to be the case that uh, Westminster is not going to oppose it. If they want to organize a second referendum, let's say, in a year from now or 18 months from now, um, they're not going to oppose it. The only thing is the timing. It appears to be the case that Theresa May would prefer to wrap up the Brexit negotiations first and then have the referendum. And, of course, the hope there would be that the negotiations are favorable to the UK and then they can go – Uh, to Scotland and uh, appeal to the Scottish voters saying, look, I mean, we have a great deal. Actually, we're better off outside of the EU, but look, uh, you know, how wonderful this uh, deal that we've negotiated is. So please remain in the UK. Right. So that I think is the game plan. Let's see what happens. Um, but, yeah, I mean, these things are getting more
1: complicated by the day. But can you expect to have the want of a Scottish referendum vote wait till the end of the Brexit negotiations when, I mean, that could take months well, on two... end, potentially a couple of years, yeah, I yeah, would yeah. We
0: think. Well, but you don't want to call a referendum right away right. so uh, because only two years have passed or two and a half years since the previous one. So right. um, apparently the Scottish uh, Nationalist Party would like to... Uh, uh, call the referendum for 18 months from now, okay. or perhaps uh, yeah, something around that time. And again, the issue is whether the Brexit negotiations will be over by then or not. But uh, it doesn't make any sense for them to organize the referendum in the next uh, in the next months. I mean, you need to prepare for things, and sure. you need negotiations, and you need all sorts of things to take place. But let's see whether that happens or not. I mean, what what is new uh, as of today is that uh, they have officially communicated to london that they would like to org- uh, organize another referendum
1: michelle can that can that actually can can that scenario play out do you think
2: i absolutely uh concur with this and you know we have to remember that the scottish nationalist party won 24 percent of the vote in 2016 in the scottish parliament And the Conservatives won 24 percent in 2015 in the House of Commons. Neither of them have a full mandate, so to speak. You know, they are the major party, but look at how many people. I think there's a concern that calling a vote, as you pointed out, there is a growing Euroskeptic. There is a concern about, you know, when to do this. And I think the other couple of issues would be there are three unionist parties in That really want to have an, you know, are anti independent, and that's the Conservatives, the Labour, and the Liberal Democrats. Mm-hmm. And the Conservatives have become the second party in Scotland. And so that's an important caveat. There are some sense that, you know, what would be the relationship? These also, the sort of risk averse. What would happen to an independent Scotland? Would it automatically become or remain an EU member? Probably not. Would it be part of the European Economic Area? And I think the third issue is the economic dependence on England, so to speak. The trade interdependence and what would happen if they became in, uh, independent. And also the fact that, um, Scotland would have to raise taxes. It is heavily dependent on, um, you know, fiscal transfers and for public services. So there are some things that, you know, they will have to consider in terms of the what-ifs.
0: Yeah, and just adding to all of that, uh, you have the problem with the price of oil. Uh, yeah. So the, uh, the Scottish yeah. independence uh, movement, uh, you know, f- a few years ago when oil, was, uh, yeah. oil prices were very high, they were, like, very optimistic about all of this and all of the... Studies that they uh, published about uh, their fiscal balance and all of that were overly optimistic. Now, with uh, cheap oil, you know, um, that being potentially a major revenue source for an independent Scotland, um, it raises, uh, you know, quite a few uh, doubts. And, uh, you know, the, the the Scottish voter knows all of this. Sure. And, uh, and uh, I think uh, it's going to be really hard to put together a coalition that uh, gives them... Uh, you know, more than fifty percent of the of the vote in a referendum in the next couple of years, because pretty much everything is going in the wrong direction for the Scottish independence movement. I think, except for, of course, the the Brexit. But I think uh, West. Uh, I think the Conservatives in London uh, can uh, reframe Brexit as a way of. Uh, you know, essentially saying, "Look, I mean, we're going to be better off, right? Yeah. Uh, in the end, if we if we negotiate uh, a good deal,
1: what are going to be the keys to you for Theresa May, uh, Michelle, uh, in terms of uh, of this Brexit negotiation coming up here in the next few months? What What does she need to try and and get from this whole process?
2: Uh, I think that you know she has a majority of seventeen. She's got to deal with her own backbench and make sure that. She sticks to uh, the message, which is we are out of the customs union, we are out of the single market, we are out of the four freedoms. I think that's the second issue is um, how she will sell it um, to... Uh, Europeans, we sort of forget and we assume that, you know, the British will go to the negotiating table, but they are going to be facing the EU and the other uh, EU 27 members. And they would like a positive mandate. They don't want it to be, you know, uh, sort of conflictual. There is the issue of will Britain have a EU exit bill. And I think the last issue and probably uh, critical one will be um, what will be the both the exit terms and conditions but also the free trade agreement afterwards because one of the biggest concerns in the areas that voted to stay and remain was uh, London and the City of London and the impact on financial services. Right now right. the economy is not really showing. You know, We had all of these gloom and doom scenarios after Uh, last June. And the economy has not dovetailed and, you know, gone down as dramatically as the initial reports. And so we will start seeing the impact uh, on consumers. But the question is, is she's got so many things. The last thing to remember is the British capacity. You know, there are thousands of rules and regulations And the question when we leave Britain uh, is how many of those that will still have to be, you know, we will implement domestically as is, and how many of them, because they have an EU angle, will have to be changed. That's going to be a mammoth process of going through existing legislation on the books.
0: Yeah, one one other thing to add there, of course, is the fate of... uh, or the future status of uh, British citizens living in the uh, 27 other yep. European countries, yep. many of them retirees, right, um, who are relying on uh, you know, the local welfare states and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, so the several millions of them, I forgot now exactly the count, uh, but uh, that's also going to be like a major point in the, uh, in the negotiations uh, moving forward. And of course, let's not forget those people do vote. Yeah. Uh, both locally in whatever country they they happen to be uh, residents of in the EU, but also they vote for national elections in the UK as uh, absentees.
1: Well, and there was an interesting article, Michelle, that I read yesterday about the just about that fact alone and how many people that are living over in Europe right now that are UK uh, citizens. Uh, they're in situations right now where, in some cases, companies won't hire them because of kind of the unknown circumstance of what is going to happen with uh, with the Brexit negotiation. So it's putting a lot of people in kind of a tough spot right now.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, while they're, uh, they've already raised it. I mean, David Davis was talking about this to one of the select committees this week about, um, you know, will they have, what will this do for their pensions? What will this do for their medical cards if yeah. they're abroad? And there's a realization now that, something has to be done for the British citizens abroad. But there are also about 3.2 million EU citizens in the UK. And that was what the House of Lords debate was about this past week. You know, can we deal nicely with some form of reciprocity early on that sort of recognizes the sort of the in limbo situation for these two sets of uh, citizens on both sides of this Brexit debate? And so, you know, that's a problem, you know, if you, you know, and it's a real, real live issue and it's, people don't want it to be held hostage as a negotiating tool either. So there are certainly, you know, yes, they vote, but, you know, they the problem was is not all of them, if they've lived abroad for a considerable amount of time, were eligible to vote during the Brexit right. referendum. So, you know, there are, you know, there's a whole host of issues about uh, people on both sides. There's a clamoring of people to get Irish citizenship. There's a yeah. clamoring of EU citizens to try and get uh, British permanent residents and some form of citizenship. It's quite difficult.
1: Great to have you on the show again, Michelle. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Great to see you again, Mauro. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Great to have you both. Uh, Wharton, uh, Professor Mauro Guian and Michelle Egan from uh, American University. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.